Oh, how deeply do we, moment by moment, need God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We need to walk in the Spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're reading from chapter uh, 18, verse 24, through to chapter 19, verse 10 of the book of Acts. We're focusing on verses 1 through 7, and the title of today's sermon is, The Holy Spirit Came Upon Them. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So as we come to today's text, I hope that you will have some simple questions in your own mind as we learn and ponder about the Holy Spirit of God today. Have you received the Holy Spirit? 
Do you walk in the Spirit? Have you been grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit? What is your relationship with God's Holy Spirit in your life? So we need to step back and be reminded of what we've learned about the Holy Spirit, the basics of what we've learned about the Holy Spirit up to this point in New Testament history, especially that our receiving, especially that our receiving and God's giving of the Holy Spirit comes via faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, we've looked at this a bit. We know Galatians was written by Paul during this controversy amongst the Jews regarding the Gentiles being granted faith in Jesus Christ and also being granted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing to the Galatians to try to protect them and persuade them against the Judaizers who'd come and tried to mislead them regarding the reception of the Holy Spirit. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We receive the Holy Spirit only by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection from the dead. And God, who supplies us his Holy Spirit, does so via the hearing of faith. That is, faith in the Jesus Christ is supplied to us. Faith in Christ is supplied to us by God along with the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. This is what happens This is the typical way that God works when he saves his people. And this extravagant outpouring of God's spirit upon all of his people defines the newness of the new covenant, the Pentecostal age, which began in AD 30 at the feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, which was about 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead and 10 days after his ascension to God's right hand. Jesus tells them the new age of the spirit power is near. He tells them this in Acts chapter one. He says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, Jesus himself sets out the contrast between John's baptism And his baptism. Verse 6 of Acts 1. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. John the Baptist baptized only with water. Jesus Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Baptism by Jesus Christ pouring out his Holy Spirit upon you brings power upon you, power in you, divine power, miraculous power, overcoming power, invincible life power, the same power that spoke the universe into existence, power in your life. In Acts 2, we see this happen to those who are already believers in Jesus Christ. For these Christians, there was a gap in time between when they trusted in Christ and they received the outpouring of the Spirit. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The same fiery power that was present in the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire that lit the fire in the tabernacle and the temple. They're displayed as we are God's temples now. The Holy Spirit of power poured out in the new covenant age. So these apostles and disciples, believers in Jesus Christ, had yet to receive the Holy Spirit prior to this day of Pentecost. Then at the appointed time, Jesus Christ began the age of Pentecost. And the cosmos was brought into the Galatians 3 experience, whereby all who have faith in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit power from above. God supplies his spirit to all who believe the word of God in the gospel of his son. Next, we see this extravagant outpouring of God's spirit was not limited to the Jews. As we saw with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, often this is described, discussed as, quote, the Pentecost for the Gentiles. Acts 10, 34 through 46. Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Now, it's worth noting that it's somewhere along the way here as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on these people that he's preaching to. We'll, we'll find that later. I don't know where. Maybe when he said he is Lord of all, who knows? Maybe that he saw it happening. We don't know. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. So you see again, you see the contrast. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Note the connection here, brothers and sisters. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit always occurs in conjunction with the hearing of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's summary of these events, we see it again, Acts eleven fifteen through 17, when he's talking to the other disciples about this. And as, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John, and John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? We need this background understanding as we come to today's text. I heard one pastor say that if this, if a text can be tortured and twisted into pain, then this text would have been on IV morphine a long time ago, because this is one of the most difficult, controversial texts in the New Testament. The one we're looking at today. So there's this background of this contrast from the beginning between John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John indeed baptized with water, we are told. The preaching and water baptism of John the Baptist occurred, now listen, within the old covenant dispensation call for repentance. Prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and prior to the new age of Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit. John's call to repent of sin, therefore, was the same, the same as prior Old Testament prophets calling for repentance and warning about God's anger and coming judgment. No different. That's the defining features of the prophetic work. But in addition, John's prophetic work was superior to any Old Testament prophet because John was also called to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, identify Jesus as the Messiah, and anoint Jesus as the Christ. Mark 1, 1 through 8 starts. Mark's gospel starts with John. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John taught his disciples about the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. John instructed them in the distinctions between this Old Testament ministry that he was fulfilling And the coming new covenant age ministry of Jesus Christ. He instructed them 
in the difference, the insufficiency of his baptism. He told them about this. So John's baptism was into repentance for the remission of sins, but the concept of atonement via via the finished work of the Messiah was not the essence of John's message or baptism, but rather forgiveness in the context of looking forward to the Messiah's work, the same context of faith that was a part of every Old Testament confession of sin and repentance. It was just that looking forward, that waiting time frame was a lot shorter. And in fact, some of them baptized with John would meet the Messiah and find him to be indeed the Lamb of God. So today's sermon, with those things in mind, we're going to see the connection with Apollos. We need to see today's text connected to what we looked at last week. Next, we'll see that Paul arrives at Ephesus and finds some disciples Talk about that and see the importance of that word disciples. A bit about Ephesus. We're going to look more closely at Ephesus next week. Paul then asks them if they received the Spirit when they believed. Paul understands the cultural issues of the prior 20 years of what's been going on with the confusion about John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry. The disciples are ignorant about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about how that should best be understood and how there's a better translation. Paul asks about their prior baptism. He emphasizes Jesus as the Christ of John's preaching. They understand this. They believe this. They clearly have jettisoned their prior false beliefs and seen the need to accept the fullness of the Messiah. And they received new covenant baptism. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And the key there is not the specific details, but the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them at that time. And then some questions to know and to love and to obey God as usual. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, we're told. So Apollos is not there, he's left. So Luke points us back to the prior episode with Apollos as we move into this event with Paul. We need to recall what we read last week. The two events are connected and they're connected by this central idea the difference between John's baptism and Jesus Christ's baptism. Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. There's no evidence that he needed to be baptized at this time. He was fervent in spirit and learning from these verses early in chapter 19. It's likely now we see, looking back, this is referencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his life as a believer and follower of the Lord, that is Jesus, the Messiah. We can look back from today's text. It helps us understand this fervency of spirit and may be related to why he did not need to be baptized at this time. So while he himself had likely received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he may not have understood fully what Pentecost was all about. He may not have understood that the Lord gives the spirit via faith in Christ to all who trust in Christ. So there was some misunderstanding on his part 
likely having to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who receives it, how you receive it, why you receive it. But his misunderstanding had apparently not kept him from having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what we see at work here likely is this 20-year-old confusion amongst the followers of John who had yet to fully come to understand either Jesus as the Messiah or that faith in him accompanies the Lord's outpouring of his spirit or how the spirit is given, why the spirit is given. We're not told exactly what area of his misunderstanding was limiting him. But his, his need to be brought up to a higher level was nowhere near what we're looking at with these 12 disciples today. They, they're, they're way in, in much greater need of instruction. So for some reason, these believers uh, that we're going to look at, and I do believe they're believers from the start, had not had enough contact with Aquila and Priscilla and the church at Ephesus to have been brought along in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd, they'd been influenced by the teachings of John, probably not directly from John, but probably followers of John. Maybe John, but you'd think they would have known more if it were John himself. So Paul arrives at Ephesus and he finds these disciples. Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and he finds some disciples. We'll look more at Ephesus next week, but for now, it was a, know that it was a city of great note in Asia, and it was famous for its temple built there to Diana, which was one of the wonders of the world and which will come into play later as we look at the events in Ephesus. So Paul had completed his work strengthening the churches of Galatia and Phrygia, and he's made his way to Ephesus, and he went through Asia this time. Remember last time the Lord didn't let him. During his second missionary journey, the Lord prevented him from going that path. But this time, he was able to go through the upper regions on his way to Ephesus. So these disciples, this word disciple here is used for those who are following the Messiah. But their knowledge of him and his ways may be very, very rudimentary. Okay, But it doesn't mean that they weren't disciples. That they weren't believers. And the use of this word here is our first clue that these individuals are not unbelievers. They're called disciples. Commentary says he was told probably by Aquila and Priscilla. This is about Paul. Paul was probably told by Aquila and Priscilla or somehow knew that they were believers, that they did own Christ and had given up their names to him. Now, Paul hereupon takes them under examination. So there's a lot to know about Jesus Christ and his kingdom and he is so gracious to save with, with when he saves, the, the level of knowledge necessary for salvation is limited. Um, but to grow up in Christ, to be sanctified, that requires instruction. Paul knows how to disciple people. He understands the culture in which these people have grown up. He knows what their needs are likely through his experience. So he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So because of this two decades of confusion amongst the followers of John the Baptist, Paul knows where to begin his discipleship efforts with these disciples. The Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven by God upon all those who trust in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And this outpouring began at Pentecost AD 30. And this outpouring occurs only by faith and not by the works of the law. 
These disciples were confused at some point herein about all of this. And Paul knew this confusion would be revealed by whether they had received the Holy Spirit or not, or at least the level of teaching need would be revealed because we see that uh, we see that when you look at Apollos, he had likely received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he still needed instruction. But having not received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit presents, as you can see, a much greater need for instruction. In this part of the text from today, we see our next clue that these individuals are believers. The text says, when you believed. This is not a story of being born again from above anew, but rather of growing up in Christ's way. So at its essence, this is a question about one's belief about how the Christian life is to be lived out. At essence, Paul's question to them and and for us to consider today is, how do you believe the Christian life is to be lived out? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you given up on the arm of the flesh? Or do you still foolishly believe you can sanctify yourself and achieve Christ-likeness on your own? Whether they believed in spirit, commentary says, whether they believed in, in the spirit whose operations on the minds of men for conviction, conversion, and comfort were revealed sometime after the doctrine of Jesus being the Christ, whether they had been acquainted with and had admitted this revelation. I'm enjoying Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And he's talking about ways that the Lord Jesus works this contentment into us. And one of those is through self-denial. And he talks about various ways that God works self-denial into us. And it's when we can say, I am nothing. I deserve nothing. I can do nothing. I'm a vile, wicked sinner. I can make no improvement upon that which he does give to me. I am worse than nothing. And because of this, if I leave this world, this world will be no worse. So how do you think the Christian life is to be lived out? Oh, brothers and sisters, this text comes down to the difference between humility and pride. The difference between brokenness and self-reliance. We think we know so much. We think we can do so much. We think we have so much power in our hands, but we do not. So these disciples are ignorant about the Holy Spirit. They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, because they knew of John and his teachings, they certainly would have known that the Holy Spirit existed. So that the idea that they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit really does not. Does not comport with the surrounding reality of this text. So the best understanding of this is that these believers did not know about what had occurred at Pentecost by God's grace. Pastor Kaiser in his Acts series says, but there's a very easy solution that most commentaries take, and that is that the Greek of Acts 19, verse 2, can be rendered, we did not even hear if the Holy Spirit was come. We did not even hear if the Holy Spirit was come. They knew that John had promised his coming. That was the whole point of his baptism. But they hadn't heard anything about the coming of the Spirit. You mean he's here? They hadn't heard that these prophecies had been fulfilled. They were living in a substandard Christianity. So it's one thing 
for a person of that age to come to understand the Old Testament teachings about the coming Messiah, the features of his character, who he is in his divinity and humanity, the things he would accomplish, what kind of person he would be, where he would be born. It's another thing to realize that that foretold Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. And it is another thing to realize that the Holy Spirit that has been promised has also arrived. So it appears that they had some understanding of Christ coming, but they didn't know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. So Paul asked them, well, then into what then were you baptized? So they said into John's baptism. So since they did not know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out, Paul asks them. They'd only been baptized into John's anticipatory baptism, not into new covenant fulfillment baptism. They had confessed their sins. They had repented and turned back to God in response to the old covenant-like prophetic preaching. They trusted in God's mercy according to Old Testament thinking. They didn't know that the Messiah, the Lamb of God, had come and died and been raised from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and was pouring out his Holy Spirit in a new age. So Paul teaches them. He said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. You know, you hear that. Yes, you've, you've got that. Saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. So he confirms everything that they have believed. Showing that old covenant repentance is no different than new covenant repentance. But Paul goes on to emphasize and to show these believers that their faith in Old Testament types has been fully and completely fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps there was some doubt even in their minds of whether the Messiah had come yet. Unlikely. 20 years is a long time. But who knows? They didn't have the internet. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. When he says his name, Jesus, he's pointing to the Lamb of God. And they're to put their faith fully in Jesus Christ, transferring all of their old covenant focus onto Christ himself, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So this teaching, whatever remnant there may have been, brings them fully transferred into new covenant faith. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. For their salvation. Paul explains to them the true intent and meaning of John's baptism is principally referring to Christ and so rectifies the mistake of those who had baptized them into the baptism of John and had not directed them to look any further but to rest in that. Those that have been left in ignorance or led into error by any infelicities of their education should not therefore be despised nor rejected by those who are more knowing and orthodox but should be compassionately instructed and better taught as these disciples were by Paul. We all need to grow up in Christ. We all have incomplete or erroneous views of Jesus Christ. And we all need to be growing up more in Christ. And to have mercy towards one another as we help each other grow in him. So next they understand, believe, and receive new covenant baptism. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Heard. This is not just a hearing of the ears. This is the hearing of faith. 
They transition from their prior incomplete understanding about the Messiah into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they express their new understanding by being baptized with water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To these disciples who received it only with an eye to John and looked no further, as if he were their savior, it was such a fundamental error as was as fatal to it as it would have been for anyone to be baptized in the name of Paul. And therefore, when they came to understand things better, they desired to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and were so. But now, why wasn't Apollos rebaptized? It kind of does bring that question up, right? Why were they rebaptized? As for Apollos, of whom it was said that he knew the baptism, baptism of John, that he rightly understood the meaning of it when he was baptized with it, though he knew that only. Yet when he understood the way of God more perfectly, he was no, no again baptized any more than Christ's first disciples that had been baptized with John's baptism and knew it referred to the Messiah at the door and with an eye to this submitted to it, they were not baptized again. So the failure of understanding of these particular disciples in some regards, perhaps even looking to John, they understood that it was such a great failure that in their minds, that baptism was of no effect. What about the proper baptism formulation? A lot of oneness Pentecostals or point to a text like this to say, you Trinitarians, you don't get it right. Pastor Kaiser says about that. Here's the point. They didn't see any contradiction. This is about the early church. The Didache, which is written in the 60s AD. They didn't see any contradiction with saying that we should baptize in the name of the Lord and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Now listen carefully. Because all three persons bear the same name. Jehovah. Jesus means Jehovah saves. But all three persons have the same name. As Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord is one and His name one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are titles, not names. Their name is Jehovah. And when Acts uses the term Lord for Jesus, it is the Greek translation for the name Jehovah in the Old Testament. So when verse 5 says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, it is saying that Jesus is Jehovah and they were baptizing in the name of Jehovah Jesus. There's no contradiction between Jesus because Jesus is Jehovah. We are baptizing into that name that belongs to all three persons. This is instructive, isn't it? Jehovah God. This is instructive to me. I think this corrected some of my thinking as I was learning about this for today's preaching. So what happens next, brothers and sisters? This is what we should long for in our lives daily. The Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So in the context of their baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon them in power and they spoke in tongues. They spoke the word of God with clarity and power. Their tongue speaking was for the purpose of prophesying, which we've already looked at. You can go back and listen to those sermons on tongues from early in Acts. They received the promised power from heaven. They received the promised power from heaven and brothers and sisters we still do today. It is a sad reality that us presbyterians who um, I think rightly understand and believe in cessationism in its right forms 
tend to not understand the continued outpouring of the fire of God from heaven upon us. And, and we tend to look askew at this kind of teaching and this kind of thinking. The things that have passed away are specific forms of the power that God gave at that time by His Holy Spirit. The things that have passed away are specific forms of the miraculous power that God gave at that time, but the power has not stopped. The presence of God in us and through us by His Spirit has not changed. Commentary says, we are not now to expect any such extraordinary gifts as they had then. And you'll, again, it's connected to the closing of the canon. The canon, canon of the New Testament being long since completed and ratified, we depend upon that as the most sure word of prophecy. But there are graces of the Spirit given to all believers which are as earnests to them. And we see this in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 1. Now it concerns us all who profess the Christian faith seriously to inquire whether we have received the Holy Ghost or not. And this is where we'll focus in our closing today. The Holy Ghost is promised to all believers, brothers and sisters, to all petitioners, according to Luke 11. But many are deceived in this matter, thinking they have received the Holy Ghost when really they have not. As there are pretenders to the gifts of the Holy Ghost, so there are to his graces and comforts. We should therefore strictly examine ourselves. Have we received the Holy Ghost since we believed? The tree will be known by its fruit. Do we bring forth the fruits of the Spirit, brothers and sisters? Are we led by the Spirit? Do we walk in the Spirit? Are we under the government? Of the Spirit. So, this is where we'll take our focus for application. Starting with the first evidence of the Spirit. Have you confessed your sin to God? Start with the youngest of you. I hope even the youngest ones are listening to me now. Have you confessed your sins to God? Have you repented of your sin and and turned away and turned away from your sin and turned back to God? Have you looked to Christ as your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in him alone for your forgiveness and for righteousness for God? When you come to believe these things, this is evidence that God is giving you his Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts is a transitional book. And so these delays between faith and the reception of the Holy Spirit have their roots primarily in that transitional time frame. Like we see with the confusion over the baptism of John versus the baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism of Jesus Christ. But. We can't therefore say that for sure everyone who ever comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has therefore received the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives. I don't want to 
say that there's not perhaps some kind of misunderstanding, some kind of prideful approach that you might have to dealing with God. Some other thing that could cause you to not understand or refuse or, or, or keep back the outpouring of God. Or perhaps you quenched or grieved the Spirit of God from day one in your walk with Him. So have you received the Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, this is power. This is power in your life. What kind of power? Inward power with outward evidences. Do you find a change in you that hates sin? Do you find a change inside of you that hates sin? And that loves God's righteousness? And do you see changes in your life accordingly? Do you see obedience to God's commandments coming forth in your life? This is going to be the way that you know there will be inward and outward fruits in your life. You cannot generate this. You can understand it. You can write a poem about it. But you cannot generate this in your life. This is God's work. Is this, is this, have you received the Holy Spirit? Now, the good and standard teaching from scriptures is that faith in Jesus Christ comes in simultaneous with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. So really the question for believers is, are you quenching, are you grieving the Spirit? And you don't even know it, right? Samson didn't even know that the Spirit had left him. So 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us that we can quench the Holy Spirit. We've seen tongues of fire today, haven't we? We've talked about the fire of the Holy Spirit today. We can think of the burning bush. We can think of the pillar of fire by night. We can think of the fire coming from heaven and igniting the sacrifice on the altar. Our God is a consuming fire. And for us who are in Christ, that fire is a fire of holiness and a fire of passion for his glory. A fire that brings light and warmth. Do you extinguish the Spirit's fire in your life? Do you extinguish the Spirit's fire in your life? How do you... How do you do that? What are the things that you can do to quench the spirit, to extinguish the fire? A fire needs fuel. Fire needs air. Right? So you can stifle, you can suppress by not being in the word, by not meditating upon God's ways, by... Giving way to disobedience, you, at that point in time, you start throwing water on the flames. Not only are you limiting its growth, but you're actually putting it out to quench the fires, to throw water on it through your willful disobedience to him. And if you willfully stay out of his word and stay away from his people, the fire will just dwindle in your life. God will work. He will call you back. 
But there is a quenching of His Spirit that can take place in your life. I want you to think about the ways that you may be quenching the Spirit in your life, either through not coming to Him or through willful disobedience in your life. Are you grieving the Spirit? You know, it's important to realize that you can't grieve a stone or a tree or a blade of grass. Really, you can only grieve another person. This gets to the nature of your relationship with God. When you are quenching His Spirit, you are grieving His Spirit. You are grieving your Lord who has died for you. And the grief ultimately is in you distancing yourself from Him and not valuing His death for you and not rejoicing in all that He's given to you. This word grief can also blend over into the idea of offending the Spirit. As His children, we can think things and do things and say things that offend Him within us. I mean, think about it. God dwells within us and we can offend him. Who is more near to us than he is? What are the outcomes of quenching and grieving God's spirit within you? What happens if you're not walking in the spirit? Right, that's the phrase we hear, to walk in the spirit, to live in the spirit. This is what we want, the fire of God flamed into as big a flame and as hot a flame and as bright a flame as we can have. We want to receive whatever amount of the Holy Spirit that he is willing to give to us in each day. We do this by coming to his word, coming to his people, coming to times of worship, coming to the Lord's table, coming to all the teaching times that we can in our lives, obeying him. What happens when we quench and grieve God's spirit within us? I want to give you two words that will characterize your life. Powerless and empty. Powerless and empty. You will be powerless against your sin. And this will be a good gift to you from God. If you're walking in the flesh, he will bless you with your flesh. If you're walking in the flesh, he will bless you with fleshly living. And in that, he will grant you emptiness. You will briefly discover what it's like to really be alone and a taste of your own vanity and your own filth. Apart from him, he shows us these things in his presence, but he will show it to you in a way where you do not experience his presence as you taste of it. And this is why we see in the Psalms, these Psalms, these near despair Psalms. Because that's where this goes to. It's, it's almost unto giving up. Because that's what will happen. That's what will happen to us apart from his spirit. May it not be that any of us in this room are tares. But apart from his spirit, that is where we go. It's into utter despair. So how do we deal with this, brothers and sisters? We have a good father. He loves us. 
and he will call you back. He will not destroy the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the, the smoking coal within you. You see, you just believe his promise and you ask him for his spirit. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, children. Ask him. And he will give you of his Holy Spirit. And in this, may it be so that we do not quench or grieve his spirit as we move forward in our lives. And may we assist one another in that as we go. Fanning the flames of God's presence in one another's lives. Being true encouragers as we go along the path together. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we indeed, Lord, are evil. And sometimes we still give bread instead of stones to our children. And we look to you now, God, in your perfect goodness and love to us in Christ. And we do together with one heart cry out before your throne that you would continuously day by day pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And that in your great kindness and power that you would not allow us to quench or grieve your spirit. That we would not go into this world of powerlessness and emptiness or near despair. But instead, O oh God, that we would walk in your presence and your power and the fullness of your joy. And that our lives would indeed be overflowing with the fruit of the spirit. Unto the glory of your name. O oh, Father, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.